0: On today's podcast it's a little bit different. It's nighttime here in Australia and I think it's early in the morning in Dublin, Ireland and I really would like to welcome John Toomey from O'Donnell and Toomey Architects in Ireland to the Think Break Australia podcast. Welcome John.
1: Hi, hi Liz, how are you?
0: Good. And I was just, we were just discussing before we started. Back in 2014, we invited you to be on the Think Brick Australia Awards jury. And I think it was the first time we had this international jury and you were our international jurors. And we had a wonderful time in Venice at that time. And then I think two years later, when I went back, To Venice in 2016 I spent some time in London and one of the reasons we had chosen you at the time to be on the jury was because of the London School of Economics building and I think I touched base with you before then and I actually went and saw the building and did all those crazy things that I do like run up to brick buildings and try to hug them but it really it was a wonderful thing to see in person and I think so much of architecture when we see the photos Seeing it in real life really just makes it come alive.
1: I'm just so glad you went to see the real thing. (laughs) Mm.
0: Before we get into that project and a few others, I just wondered whether you could talk to us a little bit about your childhood growing up.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. There was I thinking we were talking about bricks. Um, We're going
0: to get to that. We we'll get
1: to bricks. Good, good. My father was an engineer on a building site. He he was attached to a construction company. And so he was stationed on whatever structural project he was working on. So that means when I was young, we moved house every two years. He's a civil engineer, so he's building a pier or a factory or a port harbor or a drainage system or a brewery or you know something like that. And Ireland is a small country by comparison with your country. But it's very, very varied, and it's it's very different in its characteristics. So I grew up in ten different places. If you know what I mean. My early school day memory is the feeling of having a different accent than the person sitting beside me in school, <laughs> because I would just I would have just arrived, you know, from Cork when I was in Leitrim, or I would have arrived from Leitrim when I was in Cooley, or wherever I was, I was the guy who had just come in. <laughs> you asked me to describe my childhood and that's the first thing I said I, I I think that's what defines my sort of received memory of my early childhood is the feeling of you know six house moves before I was 10 not house moves but location moves
0: and what outlook did that give you in terms of places and and spaces did it make you feel like you're more well traveled than others
1: <laughs> maybe restless I don't know I, I know that when we when my parents came to settle. My father had been in this building company and then he decided to become a consultant engineer and set up his own practice and settle his family down. And in each job he did had, had more or less coincided with the birth of a child, you know, so he has a son or a daughter from all these different counties. But when when they settled it, I think I was not of a mind to be thinking about settling. So I, I think I was thinking... Okay, where where we go now? You know, so I don't know if that made me restless.
0: How many siblings did you have in the end?
1: Oh, we have five, we have five. I mean, I'm one of five. I'm the second born, so I have a boss sister, and then yeah, I'm in the middle somewhere, top of the middle.
0: And I just wondered, was your father someone that you went to these building sites or projects? Yeah. How did you get to to figure out that architecture was? a
1: pathway for you i'm sure because he was because he was on building sites i was on building sites you know either to go there after school or to go there to see what was going on or so i spent quite a lot at least my memory is i spent a lot of my childhood in my father's site office drawing on the back of his blueprints and sneaking out to climb up the scaffolding or I remember one of my very earliest memories was I must have been three or three and a half. He was building a coal mine structure in the northwest of Ireland in Arigna mines. And he took me inside a brick chimney that they had built. And I, I looked, you know, looked up the shaft of the chimney and we went after work. So you could see the stars through the through the slot at the top of the chimney. And he explained to me about the constellations. And so funnily enough, if I'm doing a talk to you about brick in Australia, my very first memory is about is about being in a brick chimney. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we actually have an entry into this year's awards and the brick house. And they've done the entire house and the roof to look at the night sky. It's, it's oh. actually fascinating what they've
1: done. Well, it must be in a place where there's no light pollution. I mean, where I am now, I'm, I'm not in Dublin. I'm in the West of Ireland. Oh, OK. Because one of, the, one of the aspects of the lockdown is that you can work from anywhere since we're all atomized anyway. So Sheila and I have a little house in the West of Ireland and we can work from here. Since all our people are in their kitchens and in their uh, attics, we, we can work from here and it's really nice. So you do a day's work and then you can go for a swim.
0: and you're just in this current lockdown when is that meant to finish
1: we resume in October I think all restrictions left on the 22nd of October but but we go back to work on the 1st of October right I don't mean back to work I mean back to the office back into the office absolutely
0: and just out of curiosity what struck you about architecture as opposed to engineering as a career path
1: well not wanting to become my father you know what I mean not wanting to be my father, and yet extremely influenced by the world, his world and the world I grew up in. So I was always thinking about places and buildings. I like building sites. And he, when I was an early teenager, he subscribed to the British magazine, Architectural Design, AD Magazine, which I didn't know anything about architecture. And we knew no architects. But for some reason, maybe for me, he, he subscribed to that. And of course, I mean, it just happened to be a fantastic time in the history of that magazine. And Frampton was the editor and Biarski was writing articles. And so when I was 13, 14, 15, I, I read every, AD every month. And I think that really turned my head. You know, I thought I could imagine doing this. And he, I, I can't imagine there were many engineers in provincial Ireland who subscribed to that magazine. But he had a stack of them outside his office. And I could sit in the lobby of the office and read the magazines. So when I came to college, I, I knew all those guys, you know, from reading about them in the paper. And then of course, when I went to London, I got to meet a lot of them. So all that joins up in in retrospect, but, mm. uh, but I guess that was important. I would spend a period of my early boyhood working with my dad and land surveying and measuring up houses and. Drawing up things with him, you know. So I, I was an apprentice.
0: And you, you mentioned you, you obviously go and study at university, and then you take that next step to London. What motivated mm. that?
1: <laughs> Restlessness. No, no. I think our our education was very influenced by British architecture culture. I mean, we had tutors who were coming in and out from London, and the kind of default for a student in in my generation was to spend the summer in London. So I I would have, you know, it's a five-year program and I I spent three or four of those summers in London. So when I left college, it felt as if London, not that London was the go-to destination, but London was a sort of default. In fact, when I left college, I wanted to go to Paris and I did go to Paris, but the wrong time of year, it was in August and everywhere was closed. Everyone was away. And I I had the idea that I would try and dig up somebody who had worked for Corb. You know, I, I, I was a, fan and i spent a good six weeks in paris maybe less maybe five weeks in paris trying to find a job and trying to survive without ever admitting that i didn't have any money or didn't have any prospect so i was knocked down and out but let's say broke in paris i remember this so well i I had a franc a day and a franc would buy you you know those pan of raisins what you know that sort of spiral with the custard in the middle and and the raisins so i would buy one of those in the morning and that and that that would last me the whole day. That's all I ate every day for, <laughs> for five weeks. And then I was getting a bit desperate. My sister who was also, in, she was working in France and she sent me an envelope with you know, a tenner in it. And so I hitched, I hitched out of Paris and went to London where I knew I could eat. <laughs> wow. And so I wound up in London. Yeah. Yeah, I could have been in Paris, but I wound up in London.
0: I was just glad you didn't buy 10 of those. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> just altogether. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Such John- a strange it's a very, a very unhealthy and very unplanned diet. You know, I honestly mm-hmm. why didn't I buy a vegetable or a fruit or something? I don't know.
0: I think when you're in Paris, <laughs> you buy one of those. Coming out of Ireland and and just growing up there, w- what was it like traveling to Paris and London, just from an architectural perspective?
1: I mean, the big—I guess the big move for me was in my wardrobe. If you like, my big move was my mental wardrobe was moving from the country to come to Dublin to study, mm-hmm. and and then when you step from Dublin to London, they're sister cities, you know. I mean, D- Dublin was once a city of the British Empire, so that's not such a big physical change. But the desire to go to Paris was to live in the world you know live in the city in the world i think paris keeps that allure
0: so you get to london and is this around the time that you started to work with james Sterling?
1: yeah so i arrived in london and i I had a college friend there who was there for the summer (laughs) i remember i came in and he lived in a flat somewhere in some inner suburban london he had a bay windowed upstairs apartment I wasn't exactly sure of the number of his house, but I thought I'd go and see him. And then I didn't want to wake him up because it was very early in the morning and I'd come in off the ferry. So I climbed up the drainpipe and climbed in the open window on the first floor, hoping it was his flat and and fell asleep on the couch. And then he woke up, you know, at breakfast time and came into his living room and found me asleep on his couch. So luckily it was his flat.
0: <laughs> I and, was um, waiting for you to say it wasn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I could have met somebody else, yeah. yeah. And then I took a little bit of a casual job and I sent my drawings. My I had, to, you probably don't imagine this anymore, but in those days you used to photograph your piece of drawings. And bring them down to postcard size and have them printed like little photographic postcards. But you only did that once and you only had one set. So it was easy to have them in your pocket, you know, when you're in Paris, because you could come for an interview and they would be in your pocket. But I posted them to Starling's office because he was the distant hero. You know, I knew all his work. I'd been to see all his buildings like, in my student summer days, and he, he was the greatest architect in the world, I thought. And so I sent my nine drawings to him. And then I realized that was short-sighted of me because um I didn't have any other drawings. On the end of the week, I rang up. <laughs> I rang up the office and Sterling's secretary answered the phone. And I said, It's very sorry, but I, I, I sent you my drawings, but I just wonder whether I haven't had any reply. And she said, Well, we, she's a very nice woman that I got to know very well, but Scottish woman. And she said, Oh, rest assured, we will reply to every letter that we get. And I said, Oh, well, you didn't reply to mine. And, you know, this might have been days after I'd written, you know, stupid. And she said, "Well, if we didn't reply, there's only one reason. It must be on Mister Starling's desk. Hold the line." Oh, and no. then this voice came on the phone. And said, "Hello." I said, "Oh, oh, hello." He said, "Um, nice drawings, actually. When can you start?" And I said, "Well." He said, "How about Monday?" This was Friday, and I, I, I said, "Monday, perfect." So I turned up for work on Monday morning. And oh. Started my life. <laughs> Was it so, you know, it's just so casual and so uh, lucky, I think. Lucky. Yeah. And it started because I was cross because I didn't have my drawings. Yeah. (laughs)
0: And isn't it? And it was fine.
1: I was the fifth. I was the fifth person in the office. There was only four people working in the office. So I, I joined a tiny office and, you know, I was 22 and I'd never worked in it. an office i'd only worked in casual factory works and you know stuff like never worked in a proper office so it was my it was the beginning of my real education
0: and just on that how long did you stay with james and what did you take away from that
1: time i I think i get mixed up about this i I, it was either four or five years because when i left sheila took my desk you know she moved i went back to dublin and sheila moved into starling's office and and she stayed another year and a half So we were there like five or five and a half years between us. You know, we we I was there maybe four years or so, but then because I kept in touch and he was a sort of a mentor figure, you know, so it was the beginning of a longer relationship. Did I take away from the office? You mean physically? No square, maybe.
0: (laughs) um, You know that some architects sort of explain that you know some of their mentors or their first roles were really into detail and and that did form those sort of hard lessons that end up you thanking those people for teaching you I just wondered
1: if there was anything Um,
0: like that
1: I think I got this sense of how an architect has to stand by a project you know tenacity I think Sterling would be able to he would be able to put forward his thought in any room, in the simplest of terms, and then just stay with that. He was a big fat man and he looked very unmovable. Mm. And so he would say, well, it's a garden, actually. It's a garden. And then that would just stay there. And then people would gradually realize we were all talking about a garden. He wasn't very elaborate theoretically, but he was very able to hold a position and not be distracted by other propositions and i think so maybe I, i'm trying to think what is that the most important thing i learned from him to just to just be the one who holds on just keep going because it takes a building takes a long time and the mm-hmm. thought thought is a thought arrives quite quickly and then five years later you find yourself just about having you know partially realized an element of that thought so it's not that you need ideas it's it's that you need to see them through in the way that you first meant them to be Mm. so I'm yeah okay let's say I learned that from him or (laughs) I saw that in practice with him
0: it's been a really big learning for me because I'm not obviously an architect or an engineer but to find out that some of these competitions you know were 10 years ago and then by the time the building is built yeah. It, it's like 10 years later and it, it, it's just, it's extraordinary. And, and I agree with you. And the classic. experiment
1: is, and the experiment is minor. You think of something, you think maybe we could lift it. Maybe we could lift it above the ground and then people could enter obliquely or something, you know, you would, and then you realize, well, okay, that's going to take me seven years to make happen. And when it happens, people will either pass it by on the street or, the, or they might find themselves going in or they might not even notice that that's what it is. You know? mm-hmm. um, so, you know, you went to see our building at the LSE, but the, what the building at the LSE really does, the, the only thing it really does, is it moves away from its building line. It was supposed to follow the street line and we just took a notch out of it so that you would make a gathering space on the street. You know, that was the gamble of the project because the aspiration had been for two bars with an atrium in the middle. Mm. And we said, ah, atrium, corporate students don't want an atrium, so let's make it so you can't have an atrium. So we just made a hole and took a like a quarry, just took a space out of it on the street. And you might or might not, passing by, you might or might not notice that. You might have thought that was always there or something. But Do you know what I was? Actually, that's the thought
0: because in the photos you see all of the, you know, these really big images of of different sides of the building. And but when you actually get there, it, it's actually completely different. But since we're talking about it, when I was a little girl, I used to uh, play with wool and elastics in my oh, yeah. in my fingers. And one of the things that we would come up with was the cat's cradle. <laughs> and I'm a- going to ask you to talk about the cat's cradle, if that's all right, with relation to the London Economics Building.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, there are, I mean, there are, uh, and of course, you're aware of this if you're asking the question. But there are two there are two aspects to the cat's cradle. One mm. is the lines that you the lines that you make in the air, you know, so you remember from your game that your fingers do that and the the threads join mm. cross between your fingers and, and then you can move it. So the lines in the air themselves are, are, are intriguing. So of course, <laughs> the LSE site is triangular and not purely triangular. Mm. And it has streets coming from every direction and that means that if you try to project all of the vectors of the surrounding streetscape onto the site, like arrows coming to the site. And then, if you try and position yourself at the same time within the sets of spaces that you're designing and try and think about the context from within to without traveling along all those vector lines, then you get this network of lines in the air, which you might call a cat's cradle. But the reason I was thinking about cat's cradles was because I've been reading W. H. Auden's essays about the role of the poet. And he's describing, you know, there are, sorry to be so diagrammatic, but let's say there are two opposite aspects of the poetic imagination or the poetic way of life. And he distinguishes them as the civic and the vatic. So the one being interiorized and the other having social responsibility. And he kind of, at that point in his life, he thought that poets should not become so entangled in their own cat's cradles. Right. In the complexes of their own imagination, that they're not looking outwards and not realizing that they're also in the world and have a relationship with the world. So I think when I mentioned the LSE as a kind of analogous cat's cradle, what I was trying to bridge was this distance between the games that you're playing in your mind to try to set problems for yourself to solve. But the more responsible role of, of making your work make sense in the world, make, making your work, you know, build meaning in the world or have value in the world, use, use value. I mean. But the thing that I think is interesting is that if you only try to make it useful in the world, then it might have no mystery, you know. <laughs> so I think in a way you have to lose yourself a little bit in the internalized whirlpool, or, you know, the the thing that stirs your own imagination. You Mm -hmm. have to let yourself go into that a little bit, even though you know that you're really meant to be a responsible, civic-minded, social active person to be an agent. But I think the inward dreaming is a big part of the purpose, is the motive purpose of a lot of architects' work or architecture, and, and is also the response that the citizen feels towards work you know i think there's a, i think there's an, a, a strong analogy between the purpose of poetry and the purpose of architecture that's
0: and and i i think you capture it beautifully in in that particular building because it's one of the ones that i've been to but it is well geometrically very intense what you've done with the space and yeah. you can see that there's this relationship between obviously where you wanted to be from an architectural standpoint and purpose but then also how that was actually going to be a functional one as well for the students
1: well it's a kind of a it was a kick you know it was a push because the LSE has an amazing campus because it's all made out of these little windy streets <laughs> and it had it had no building it had not built any new building for 40 50 years here, here we were you know invited to make the town hall for this amazing university and its campus characteristic is on the streets Mm. so you so, in one way, you could sort of forget about the university and just think about the streets. Mm-hmm. And it was London. you know you were asking me earlier about formative influences. But my very first summer in london, when i was when I went as a you know first year student, I had every kind of job in the world. You know I did every kind of factory job and casual job in the world. But I ended up in the kind of relative, almost lifetime security of of being a street sweeper in Covent Garden <laughs> in the market in Covent Garden. And I could have stayed forever. I had a barrel and a brush and a wooden barrel and you just walk around the streets sweeping up and having your lunch outside a cafe because your clothes are too smelly to go in and I, it was the summer of course and this is I before paris
0: before Paris. i
1: absolutely loved it yeah yeah i was 17 you know something. <laughs> but I, I just loved it and mm-hmm. i got to know those corners of the way two streets come together in london and brick buildings go around corners and so when we came to the LSE, it it just felt like the streets I'd been sweeping when I, when I was a kid. Full circle. Um, I love that atmosphere in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we came to the interview for the competition, and we just said, "Well, London is a city of bricks. We're going to build in brick." And the jury, who were, you know, the various levels of intellectual and managerial roles within the LSE, the jury the jury took up this point and. They, instead of talking about the project they said oh you really think london is a city of bricks and so Sheila and I talked about all the brick buildings in london and the brick houses and, and the dimensions of the houses and what made up the mobile characteristic of the physical architecture of the city and so it meant that we were we were selected on the basis of being the people who were banging on about bricks <laughs> and, then, uh, and nobody ever 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 questioned one aspect of that brick architecture after that you know we, we, we had to make a lot of other adaptations to do with budget and function and, but it was always this brick thing and and because that was the very first thing we said you know this is what we're doing so <laughs> it's funny it's
0: before funny. I'm going to talk a bit more about brick but I wondered just obviously your partner yourself and Sheila how did yeah. how did that partnership come to be
1: oh yeah well she's a brick yeah um <laughs> I met her, in, I met Sheila in college. We, you know, we, we were in the same studio in the first year. And so we met in Dublin. So arriving in Dublin and meeting Sheila are their uh, inseparable events of my life. And <laughs> she's a real Dubliner, lived all her life in Dublin.
0: A real Dubliner. What, 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 well, you know, they're, I
1: mean, they're so, they're so sophisticated and they know so much, you know. Okay. Country people have to run to catch up with them. <laughs> and she's a year older than me. And, you know, that means she has. Just that additional element of sophistication, which persists to today. One I was day gonna say maturity, just... but
0: sophistication. One...
1: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> one day I'll just one day I'll just get there. Yeah, we met in first year. And I I mean it's it's fair to say that our friendship developed across the years of our education. And maybe for both of us it was a good thing that it was a five-year course and not a three-year course and probably also a good thing it was a five-year course and not a seven-year course so by the end of the five years we were just about ready to head on out together and (laughs) so we left college together and Dublin together you know to find our way way in the world and we've been together ever since.
0: And but when was it that you decided to to form your own practice?
1: I think that happened yeah we came back we were in London but we weren't really working together and then we came back to dublin and sheila was teaching at at ucd and i was working in the in the state office in the office of public works looking to get some you know real experience of building because in starlings i i'd been at the drawing board but i had never been on a building site and then and then i think it 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 was inevitable it was inevitable we were living together we're very we we think each other's thoughts so i think it was inevitable that we were trying to work together we did some competitions together and then we started to get people asked us to do a few things which we did together as feasibility studies or as helping out in in an activist way you know helping out the groups we were working with like we were part of a movement from a sort of anti-catholic you know multi-denominational educational movement so we got involved with those sort of people and then we did some experimental feasibility studies for schools for them to see what kind of difference that kind of school would make so our practice kind of developed up out of our conversations that we were having with others and it started with two of us and now we're, now we have now we're 40
0: and what would you say your your best ab- attribute that complements Sheila in working together
1: I like to think that I'm able to hold on to a thought even in the middle of doubt I like to try to focus our energies towards that towards that just that, mm. and you might say that might be an inclination towards recklessness or, or or headlong. Maybe I mean, of course, I have you know I have whatever I can do with through drawing and design and all that. But you were asking what I bring. Maybe that's one thing I
0: bring. Well, I think it's an interesting, especially with partnerships, because normally when you meet the two people, they're very very different, and it always <coughs> fascinates me as you know. It obviously works, but it's not that I was saying you, struck, you and Sheila struck me as totally different people. I was just curious.
1: Yeah, that's right. We do talk things out. There is conversation, you know. So I actually think that the fact that everything has to pass the other person, even if you're only working on it yourself, you know, even if it's a thing that she's doing or, or I'm doing, it has to pass the conversation test. The design so has we, to fix. No idea is ever therefore so unreasonable that it hasn't, that it hasn't already been explained and discussed to another person before it's ever presented to anyone. Mm. So I think in that sense, we approach things a little bit more in the round than, than if you were doing it completely on, on your own. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if she would say that, but I think she might say that, that no project belongs to either to me or to her, no matter who started it. Because they've all been through this sheep dip. Test, critique.
0: You know? <laughs> I was going to say sophisticated <laughs> critique. John, you touched on a little bit, and I and I know that you continue to teach at UCD. Could you explain just the impact that that has had on what you do?
1: I've been teaching all my working life. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I actually started teaching when I was a student. I used to do crits in another school of architecture when I was studying at UCD, because just as a student rep, you know. Mm. And I think I'm very, very interested in the world of student inquiry. And I'm not really interested in teaching people how to do things, but I'm very interested in what happens when a group of students or individual students take away the thing that you've offered them and take it away in a different direction. And then, and to see what they come back with, you know, how fast, it, how fast they learn and how fast they move. And they're, you know, if you teach in first year, you can find somebody who doesn't doesn't know how to do anything and with a few basic tools you you find they're so accomplished you know so they, they learn so fast there's a great pleasure then in being absorbed in that world and it's very refreshing there's a second aspect to it i think that it means that you have to find a way of accounting for yourself because people ask you questions like you know why did you say that or what do you mean by that and it's very helpful, I think, to be asked those sort of questions because you, you have to stop and backtrack and try and think, how did I get into the position where this is what I think? And then by doing that, actually you develop what you think, you know, mm. you you make conscious what might have only been instinctual. So it's a forum, it's a forum for the students to develop, but it's also a forum for the for the tutors to set out and also determine a position. Um, it's
0: a, that's a great word for him, But I, I honestly, um, after speaking to all the architects that I have, it, I think it is unique and such a beautiful aspect of this profession that yeah, yeah. there's so many luminaries that are still teaching and being involved exactly the way that you describe it.
1: But that's a third aspect of teaching. <laughs> one is the students, one is your thinking. And the third, of course, is is. All the people you meet through teaching, all the other architects, because those who are active in the field are generally active in education. And Mm so I've made so many friends through teaching and lecturing and events like this and events like the Biennale where we met, you know, that that there are 250 people around the world who are all friends with each other um, because they met through one way or another through teaching or experiments or projects or something, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true.
0: So John, we are going to talk a little bit more about brick because it wasn't just the London um, School of Economics that you used. You've used brick. You've used it in Germany and a lot of your other projects. Why brick? And and particularly since you've just said that you used <laughs> brick in London because it was London. And um, <laughs> how did you sell that when we got to Germany? Why brick? Yeah.
1: Well, Germany was Hamburg and that's truly a brick city. But it's amazing how many places you can show up and find their brick cities. You know, there's brick seems to be, you know, you go to Rome and it's a brick city or. Yeah, I, I understand. I've never been to Melbourne, but I understand that Melbourne is a brick city. Dublin is clearly a brick city because the the British who were all their history were at war. Mm. um, The British employed the Dutch merchant navy to work their trade, their export, you know, their 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 extraction trade out of Ireland. So all the beef and grain that came from Ireland to go to feed the British mainland was shipped by Dutch merchant navy. And the Dutch had to bring something with them as ballast on the ships when you know when the ships were arriving empty. Mm. And so they would all the ships that came into Ireland were full of bricks. So which landed on the quayside and then the beef and grain was taken away. So all the first Georgian houses in Dublin are all built-in Dutch brick that was dumped on the quayside. So it's a kind of interesting thing that, you know, the module of brick is transportable and you can either make it locally in clay or you can bring it in as ballast on ships. I, I can't get over how interesting the material. It's a manufactured object, but it's a raw material. It's made of clay, but it's rock solid. So I know we met in Venice and Venice is truly a city of bricks. But now actually we're in the happy position of building a building in London out of Venetian bricks. We, the, the bricks we found when we were in Venice, the brick manufacturers that we found in Venice who've been building buildings in, you know, those amazing side streets of Venice for hundreds of years. We're using those very bricks now to build a new building in London and we're having great fun, you know, working with the brick manufacturers to make bricks, to make tiles, to make glazed tiles, to make... Everything comes out of one factory and wow. roof, walls, floor, everything. Wow. And from Venice <laughs> to London, this is a theater that we're doing in London at the moment. Mm. So, I, I'm not, we're not fed up with bricks yet. No, no, we're not. No, we're not.
0: <laughs> what, what keeps, uh, I mean, is the familiarity? Oh, I can't even talk now. Is that a reason that you keep using them, or? Yes,
1: yes, yes. I love that. Don't you? I I love the fact that they're so utterly. When you say down to earth, they are so rudimentary and blunt. You know, there you go. There's a brick. There's another brick. There's another brick. Brick mm. on brick. People even use it. People even use it in their language. You know about bricks and mortar. You know, people mm. talk about you know as, as being ordinary. That's what about the bricks and mortar, but. Mm i guess it's the same with isn't it the same with language about bricks that it's not just the elements of the words you use but it's how you combine them to to make something greater you know and it's better for being made out of ordinary vocabulary you know you have a limited vocabulary but but it's better it's more complex because you've made it out of fewer parts like the blues you know so I don't know the, the limit that it put the limit that it puts on you is a limit that allows it to reach further, I think. Mm. So we would happily, we would happily find excuses to use, use brick wherever we go.
0: I know when we were in Venice and we were talking about the contractors and, and the bricklayers, and I think the relationship is a little bit different between in the northern hemisphere than it is here. Can you just describe a little bit how involved your bricklayers become in these projects? the
1: beginning yeah Yeah. so uh, the world has changed i mean the world i grew up in you know my father's building sites the builder owned the site owned the building and everybody worked in gangs for the for the builder but in our world now our managed world the builder's role has become quite different and what we might think more of as a subcontractor or a specialist subcontractor or something mm-hmm. becomes a bit more like an autonomous or independent consultant to the process of building. Mm-hmm. So building sites are far less synthetic, far more multi-layered and separate disciplines. So what you've got to cut through, you've got to cut through the paperwork, prevent yourself from believing that it's to do with some program that's pinned to a wall or you know sent up in a chart and you have to just remember that it's still actually physically built by people mm-hmm. and you have to find the people who are going to do that and so you have to you know you have to dive down through the bureaucracies and outside the meetings and under the management until you find the character who's going to be the brick manufacturer or the brick layer or the brick midwife you know who goes between the manufacturer and the brick there. Well, I, I love it. Neither did I until I said it to you now, but that's certainly, there certainly is such a thing. They just don't know who the, they don't know that's who they are, but, mm-hmm. um, the, you've got to get the trust of the person who really is going to do it. You know, mm-hmm. if you stay in the room at the meeting, you miss the point, I think. Mm. So what I try and do is talk to the guy who's doing the work and, or go to the factory, you know? I say i want want to go to the factory and people say well we we know what they do at the factory they make and i said no i want to go to the factory or i want to go to the yard or i want you know so or i want to go out on the site and and then i really i really like that because then you meet the human being who who lives by it you know and who can do something that you can't do way beyond what, what you can do and and then you say to people this is a bit tricky because we've got a lot of awkward corners here and we've got this idea that that the thing should have no joints or, or whatever it is that you have in your mind and the person who knows what he's doing realizes that you're trying to look for something just a little bit extra and so by having made it difficult to do you get people's much better attention they try much harder they want to um, rise to because, the challenge yes no without I mean without question the thing the way to get something done well is to make it really hard to do and then because this is a problem of standardisation. That people think, in order to achieve a level of quality, then we have to rationalise things to a level where they can be done easily, and and then they and then we can control how they're done. That's not how to do it. What you do is you make it extremely difficult to do, <laughs> and then a guy comes in and says, "Ah, oh, yeah, that's I, I can do that," you know, or I know a guy who can do that, or if I got together with this other guy, the two of us, we could do that. That means you set a trap, but not a trap, but you've got them. You know, you've got yeah. them because you've got their interest. And you got bricklayers who I mean Sheila met at the LSE, Sheila met a bricklayer who was bringing his father around the scaffold on a Saturday to show him that there's still people, you know, that he can still do what his father used to be able to do. His you know, his very old father, you know what I mean? Because he had pride. And I love I we I like to meet boat builders or instrument makers or potters or you know anyone who's doing something with their hands. Hmm. And uh, and then I think it's always interesting to see how good it can be and how how bored they are by not being stretched. I think you were asking me about building sites, and and I was trying to describe the social setting of a building site, which is now much less homogenous and much more atomized. Mm-hmm. Um, but and so what you are trying to do instead of relying on the main contractor or the general foreman, you've got to find the people who are actually going to lay that floor or build that wall. or And then you have to, when you find them and when you adopt them, you've got to see what else they can do. Say, so, well, if, hey, if you can do that, maybe, you know, this thing over here we were thinking about, and, and, then, you, and then you get going, you know.
0: The engagement is so important, though. I, there's a couple of bricklayers in Melbourne, and whenever they start something new, they call me up. And one time they came to the airport and picked me up, to take me to this absolutely beautiful, it was a university project as well. And they were so proud of how they'd come up with fixing some of the control joints so that the electricals yeah. got, could go and, you know, they yeah. said, take the photo, take the photo. And I, I get home and I i mean, I'm taking the photo and my husband's, I said, see, that's where they did the control joint. And, and, were, and I'm trying to explain to him, he thinks I'm absolutely taking this job way too far. But I think the pride in the craftsmanship is so important, and I think that's a. I think that is the loveliest thing about bricks, because you know anyone could lay a brick really poorly, and also special people can lay it beautifully, and it takes on a completely different form either way.
1: I remember again when I was a student, we had a there was a guy who was a couple of years ahead of us in college, who was a particular kind of guru. You know, he's a very special guy, and he was building a house for his parents and he had been like all of us he was Corbusier fanatic so he wanted to build a kind of rough brick house rough brick wall because of Corbusier's Maison Joule and things and he said to the builder just just you know do it with your eyes closed like do it rough you know just just build a rough wall there that's going to be just as if the as if there was no drawing you know just build a wall so the builder did and Tony went back the following Saturday you know to to see it and he said oh no 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 I didn't mean that kind of rough you know <laughs> so so he, he then had to even when you say to someone i don't want any control of course you mm-hmm. that's the most extremely difficult kind of control to do <laughs> the one that looks like it has no control yeah. mm-hmm. so we you know this question of texture in these venetian bricks we're using for saddler's wells theater we've spent a lot of effort to try to make all the materials compatible. So there's bricks on the floor, bricks on the wall and tiles on the roof, and they're all made out of the same clay, but uh, it's like, it's like cookery exercises to try to get the guys in the factory to the degree of roughness or smoothness or consistency or inconsistency. You know, it can only be, it can only be tested through sampling, doing it. Mm. If you just wrote it down, you, you lose control Mm. or if you just specify it, you lose control. So we make these big, you know, we get them to build these big samples and then we all stand around and look at them. And and then something occurs to you, you know, it's well maybe if maybe if we use them all backwards, you know. <laughs> so yeah, that's what we're still at that. I'm sorry, we're still at that learning stage, yeah, you know, with everything.
0: And when's that project due to be completed, John?
1: It's it's been a bit slowed down by COVID, but so it was due to be 22, you know, next year. So I'm not sure, maybe the year, maybe the end of next year.
0: Wow. Well, I have found this captivating, and it's really been such a different perspective for me to hear what you have to say. So, thank you so much. And before we go, we do have these rapid fire questions. So, the first one is reading the news, a newspaper or online? 50 50. Handwriting or typing?
1: 50 50.
0: For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, a pen or an
1: e-pen? Pencil, 100%.
0: Do you like to read books or listen to audiobooks? Read. What is important to you, style or substance?
1: Substance.
0: Coffee or tea? That's very
1: stylish, though. Substance is very yeah.
0: stylish. What it's was true. That? Sorry. Uh, the next one was coffee
1: or tea? Morning or evening. Good <laughs> morning now. I have not
0: had that answer before. <laughs> TV shows or movies? Movies. Antique or modern?
1: Modern that will last to be old.
0: Call or text?
1: 50-50.
0: Travel back in time or into the future?
1: Back in time because that's how you learn about the future.
0: Exterior or interior?
1: <laughs> it's all the same.
0: <laughs> Video games or board games?
1: No, uh, board games.
0: Form or function?
1: 50-50.
0: <laughs> and yeah, uh, with relation to design, the final question, complex or simple?
1: I, I would I know you're looking for short answers. Um and I know that Einstein said as, as simple as possible and no simpler. I would look now for simplicity through through the tangle of, of complexity. Mm. I think the goal is simple Mm. but if you aim simple you lose it so you have to travel through the complexity with the goal of finding it simple don't set out for simple I love
0: that John thank you so much it's really I hope you've enjoyed it I have and it's just been a totally different perspective for me and very interesting to to hear about things from you and about you If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.